You're listening to the Bridge Christian Fellowship Message Archive. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Seattle. For more information, visit thebridgeseattle.org. Today's message is The Good Life, Those Who Mourn by Pastor Dan Dameron, given on July 16, 2017. The scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In a chain of counterintuitive, maybe paradoxical statements, uh, we have come to the one that probably takes the prize, uh, because you you could translate this as, happy are those who mourn. How does that even make sense? Um, Maybe especially for, uh, for us in the United States of America, where our whole thing was founded uh, on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, I guess part of understanding this has to be, what does it mean to be happy? What is, what is happiness? What is blessedness? Or the way that I'm trying to recast this, what does it mean to live the good life, and how does that involve mourning? Um, a, lot of, a lot of times when I've heard this talked about, um, they, they focus on a kind of a word comparison of joy and happiness. And I don't think that that is incorrect or improper. Um, but I'm not going to get into that, especially when it's, you know, discussion of, of words that maybe don't have, you know, our connotations are not necessarily the connotations of, um, that, that Jesus was trying to use of these words that we translate so I'm going to try to deal more with, with concepts than with uh, specifically chopping apart the words. Um, but I will say that here again we have Jesus proposing something in contrast to the message being sent by the surrounding culture, which we're going to use as shorthand, uh, the term the world, to talk about the surrounding culture. So the world says, blessed those are those who avoid a lot of things. Avoid suffering, avoid um, persecution, avoid sorrow, avoid entanglements. But Jesus says that true happiness is not about avoidance. The good life uh, does involve mourning. As opposed to something that I used to call shiny happy Christians. So I don't know if anybody else remembers, uh, there was a song by the B-52s, who were old 
before my time, and then they made a comeback, and then that comeback is way before any of your time. But uh, you may have heard this song. It, I think it turns up in like soundtracks and stuff. And basically, the whole song is this them kind of chanting over and over, shiny, happy people holding hands. Um, they did a lot of drugs. Um, <laughs> what, this, what that song, uh, and the song was somewhat irritating to me, and so it made it even more appropriate in my mind to adapt it to a subcultural phenomenon that I found annoying. And that's the, and that's the one where this idea that as followers of Jesus, we have to always be smiling and upbeat. Um, and it's kind of the thing of, like, you may be fighting in the car on the way to church, but when you hit that parking lot, let's plaster on those grins and, uh, and pretend that we have no problems when we walk inside. Uh, another kind of example of this, and uh, I, I mentioned this a, f a few weeks back, I think in a different context, and I, I want to have the disclaimer, I don't think that this is necessarily what my, what my Aunt Barb was doing, but my impression as a child, she would do something like stub her toe or slam her finger in the door, and she would say, oh, bless the Lord. And, and my impression of that as a child, as a teenager, was, oh, this is about being fake. Now, I, I think, actually, years later, have, you know, having more than doubled my acquaintance with my aunt, um, that she was generally trying to change her um, perception of the world in that. And I think that if, if that's what you're doing, if you're saying, I want to just be mad and say things that children shouldn't hear, but I'm going to say this uh, other thing to, be, to pretend that everything is great, I think that's terrible. But if you are trying to say, oh, in the grand scheme of things, I have a blessed life, and so I'm not going to let a minor pain be a big deal. That's, that's probably fine. But, but there are people who are using that same tactic as, as a little bit of a, of a mask for the way that they're approaching life, and, and this, this concept that, well, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to be happy about stuff because we are, you know, we've been accepted by God, so nothing should ever bother us. And I, I think that's uh, a really inappropriate way of viewing our, our experience and our calling. So last week we talked about that blessed are the poor in spirit, and this, I think, not only does it follow sequentially, I think it follows logically. If you are poor in spirit, if you understand that you can't fix all of the problems in your life on your own, uh, then that should drive you toward mourning. But, as this says, as Jesus says, it's, it's only through that process that you get to the point of being comforted. If we're poor in spirit, that means that we recognize our situation, which drives us to mourn if we see things accurately. And you can't be comforted until you face your situation and recognize that you need comforting. So in 12-step programs, which I have not participated in, but I, I have read their things, the first step is admitting that you have a problem and, it's, and that it is beyond you. Until you uh, kind of bang into that uh, powerlessness, you will keep making excuses. You'll keep trying to pretend that everything's okay. 
And it's not until you are confronted with it actually being a big problem, you know, sometimes the term is used of hitting rock bottom, and until you do that, nothing can change. And a bad situation, if, if nothing uh, essentially changes, will continue to be bad, and you cannot uh, find true comfort. So there's three different kind of stages, I'm going to say, of mourning. Not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to go through these in sequence, um, but three different types of mourning that I think are appropriate to read from this. Uh, the, f- the first one, and probably the one that's most important to encounter uh, sequentially, actually, is to be grieved by uh, my own sin. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, who you're going to keep hearing quotes from throughout this whole series, says that conviction must of necessity precede conversion. A real sense of sin must come before there can be a true joy of salvation. So that's kind of that, you know, the 12-step program thing. You, you must first mourn over your sin. If you don't think that you need Jesus, then you have bypassed the gateway uh, into the kingdom. To enter the good life, to be reconciled to God, to be accepted into the kingdom, you have to recognize your problem first. And, again, Lloyd-Jones says, this is not only true at conversion, it is something that continues to be true about the Christian. He finds himself guilty of sin, and at first it casts him down and makes him mourn. But that, in turn, drives him back to Christ. His peace and happiness return, and he is comforted. So that here is something that is fulfilled at once. The man who mourns truly is comforted and is happy, and thus the Christian life is spent in this way, mourning and joy, sorrow and happiness, and the one should lead to the other immediately. In Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, Paul talks about this situation. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He recognizes that he has a problem. He has something within him that continually drives him away from God, but thanks be to God that in, in Christ's sacrifice, he offered not only uh, at the first time the forgiveness of that and reconciliation, but repeatedly, whenever we are drawn away, uh, Jesus draws us back. We have to face our sin to be freed from it, and as Lloyd-Jones says, it's not a one-time thing. It's a continual process. We live life not so much in a straight line but in a spiral, we keep coming back around a lot of times to the, to the same things, but hopefully we come around to them at a deeper level, and the next time we understand it more deeply still. The second way that we can think about uh, being, being blessed as we mourn is, as William Barclay wrote, blessed are those who have endured sorrow and have learned and been deepened by it. So I talked before about a culture of avoidance. And I think that that is, uh, well, it's half of the way that our culture def- defines happiness. We avoid pain, we avoid sorrow, we avoid blame, we avoid entanglements. So, as a culture, we take a lot of painkillers, we take a lot of antidepressants. There may be times when either of those are appropriate. I would say we take too many. I take 
way too much ibuprofen, and I alternate uh, sometimes through the day. I'll take ibuprofen, and then because I want something else before the time that it says I can take more, then I take some aspirin in the gaps. And I'm pretty sure if I told a pharmacist <laughs> that, he would say, no, that's not how those work. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, I took those four hours apart, and I took these other ones four hours apart, so I'm good. Um, people throughout all of human history until the you know, most recent decades, and still people all over the world, that would probably blow their minds. Wait, you, ha you have an ache, and so every few hours you take a pill? Um, it's, it's something that makes sense within our culture, but it, it betrays a larger uh, misapprehension about the world, that I should never have discomfort. Wait a minute. My shoulder aches? There must be something wrong with the cosmos. Um, and similarly, uh, I think with antidepressants. I, I have no expertise in, uh, in, in mental illness or you know, a stage down from that, but it sure feels like, uh, just like every other medication in our society, they're getting prescribed for lower and lower thresholds, and they're being uh, prescribed for longer amounts of time and for uh, more significant levels of dosages. Something that I'm also going to throw into this same category of kind of a, a mental paradigm, as I said, the avoidance of blame. I think we're all familiar now with the non-apology apology. So you will be happy if when you're caught doing something really bad, you say, hey, I'm sorry if anybody was offended. Uh, I'm not sorry about what I did because clearly I would never do anything wrong because that would mean that I was bad and I can't handle being bad. So I'll apologize for your hurt feelings without accepting any blame for what I've actually done. And along the, uh, the same spectrum of ideas about how we interact with the world, um, a, a general posture in our culture of not wanting to be involved. So. It's really too bad that that's happening over there, but it's not my problem. And, and a justifying of that uh, attitude by not wanting to interfere in other people's business. In contrast, in the kingdom of God, we're called to grieve over oppression. We're called to not turn away from seeing that things are wrong, whether that's something that we have done or something that somebody else is doing. We find comfort in God, not in temporary fixes, and we experience sorrow. We allow ourselves to experience sorrow over our sin instead of trying to pretend it didn't happen or saying, I wish you didn't feel badly about what I did to you, uh, even though what I did to you was bad. Um, Jesus, it says, wept over Jerusalem as he approached it in his last trip there. Um, and his, his wording reminds me of a... Radiohead song that I often sing to my children. You do it to yourself, you do. Just you and no one else. He says, how often have I wanted to gather you in like a hen protects her chicks, and you wouldn't take it. How often does Jesus come to us and say, just recognize your situation, and there's healing, there's reconciliation here, and, and, and you won't take it because that would involve admitting that you've been wrong coming up to this point. Jesus also wept at the tomb of Lazarus, despite the fact that he was minutes away from raising him from the dead. I think that he wept in this situation for 
uh, a couple of reasons. One, that the fact of loss and separation had happened. Even though he knew that joy was right around the corner, uh, for, for days, his friends and family had been grieving that separation and that loss. And I think that um, he also wept because of the, of the fallenness of the world that set up that situation. The fact that sin had entered the world and created uh, a general situation that, that brings about loss and separation. It does not make it not hurt to know that it will be made right. Uh, this is something that, uh, you know, why do children cry so much when they get hurt? Are they experiencing a higher degree of pain? I don't think so. I think what it is is that as a child, you're never sure if this might not be how, just, how things just are now, right? The first time you do something, it hurts, and you're like, is this the rest of my life? Because I, I really don't like this. And is this going to go on forever? The first time uh, in a, that you have your heart broken in a romantic sense, it, it's much worse than subsequent times. Not because, well, probably partly that it usually happens at a time when your hormones are going crazy and uh, you're less mature. But I think the biggest part of it is like, is this how I feel forever now? Um, what we go on to learn is like, no, things, things go from a sharp pain to a dull ache. Um, and then I'm starting to learn that and then the dull aches start to become a more stabbing ache. But, but really, the, the fact of pain, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't right now make it feel okay to know that it's going to be okay in the future. And I think that's, why, that's part of why Paul writes in Romans 12, 15 that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, but we are to weep with those who weep. And we can't do that. We cannot empathize with those who are in, um, in pain, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual, if we have never let ourselves weep over our own situation. I know someone who, I, I think she coined this phrase, but it's a great one, uh, that God never wastes pain. At least one of the reasons that we, when we come to Christ, rather than being whisked away uh, immediately to his celestial throne room, one of the reasons that we are still here is so that we can experience the things that allow us to be uh, a shoulder for those who are in the midst of that pain themselves. Which leads us, uh, to again, in the words of William Barclay again, to the next type of mourning. Blessed are those who are desperately sorrow, sorry for the sorrow and suffering of this world. It's way too easy to become calloused uh, in our current society. There's only so many commercials of starving kids in Africa that you can see and, and emotionally manage. You have to either stop watching TV or you have to develop some calluses in order to be able to deal with the world. The crazy thing is, is that basically every person in the world on objective standards is has a better situation than their historical equivalent. Um, but everything looks so much worse because everything that happens, we are now bombarded with. A hundred years ago, if somebody's house burned down in Atlanta, 
we would never have known about it. If the whole city of Atlanta burned down together, we would not know about it for months. But now, everything that happens, every, every tragedy that happens anywhere in the world is brought to us. And as humans, we don't have the capacity to, to deal with that. And so the most natural response is to, is to wall it off, is to wall off our hearts, and, and to try to not let ourselves be affected. I remember reading newspaper articles uh, about the situation of prostitution on, on Aurora and thinking, oh, that's, that's really too bad. And then, uh, and then I started working for a while at, in the lumber yard at, at, uh, at the Dunlumber location on 93rd and Aurora, which is right smack dab in that bad zone. And it went from, oh, that's too bad in an intellectual sense, to seeing people every day in shocking circumstances. And if you allow yourself to see, or if you are forced to see, you, you, can't, you can't compartmentalize it anymore. You have to deal with it in another way. Uh, I was basically multiple times a day just rocked and heartbroken. A lot of the people that I worked with, um, their method was to, to have to try to make a joke of it, you know? So when you see somebody who has just shot up basically on the property of the business that you work at, uh, fighting invisible people in the alley, at first it's funny, because <laughs> they're throwing punches at nothing, but if you think about it, which a lot of my coworkers didn't want to let themselves do, uh, here's somebody who has really gone past the point of, of fixing their problems. Ultimately, spiritually, we're all past that point. But to see that in, in such stark terms, uh, I think once, once you go to injecting, you've basically said, all right, everything's on the table. Uh, I've, I had a lot of friends in the past, and they would, they would uh, kind of put anything in their mouth that was given to them, and... Uh, whether it belong there or not. But, you know, when you, I think it is a significant line when you go to needles. And how can we, how can we see that? How can we know about it and not mourn? If we don't mourn, it means that we are not operating with an accurate view of the world and we cannot be comforted with that just sitting in a little box in the back of our minds, we, ha we have to confront it and then let Jesus deal with it. When we do service projects, um, you know, as we try to start up on this, on this letter campaign, uh, there's, there's a fun part of it saying, oh, it's good to help people. But as the challenging part of it is now, now you know, you know, so until... Nicole brought up this, uh, this project. I didn't know that there were people kind of in immigration limbo for years in, in cells in Tacoma. And now I know, and now I have to feel bad about it. And what do we do? We either mourn and take it to God, or we try to pretend we didn't hear about it. This is all part of the, uh, that concept, again, of, of the now but not yet. So in the, in the first case... As Lloyd-Jones said, we, we can get immediate comforting for our mourning 
when it's about our sin. If we bring that to God, he immediately fixes it. And that's part of the kingdom already here. But there are parts of the kingdom that have not come in their fullness. And we have to, we have to look at that. We have to say that there is still pain, there is still oppression in the world, and we have to, we have to encounter it and try to do something about it uh, through Jesus. In James 1.27, he writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We have to encounter the distress, let ourselves see it, if we are going to be of use in it. Now, the essential core of all that brokenness in the world uh, of heroin, of prostitution, of child trafficking, any of the things that concern us, it all is a uh, downwards, downstream from the essential cause, which is separation from God. So, when we see these things happening, it should break our hearts. But does it break your heart that your friends and neighbors don't know Jesus? We, the church, the body of Christ, we're banking everything on the prospect that the root of all the problems of all of the people that we would want to help is that they are separated and at odds with God. And that the only true solution is reconciliation to him through the love and sacrifice of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we meet together. That's what that table means. A story that um, some people say happened, some people question, is that the, the, the Times new newspaper of London sent out a letter to prominent authors and writers at the time just say, wanting them to send something back in that they could publish, saying, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, um, a prominent at the time uh, mystery novelist and uh, a writer of, of Christian books talking about defending Christianity, uh, wrote back a very short letter. Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. What the... The, what this means is that we can't solve all of these problems that are actually symptoms if we ignore uh, the core issue. We can easily be moved by the commercials for um, starving kids around the world or Sarah McLaughlin singing about uh, sad dogs. It is important that we understand what's behind all of these things. And we must have our hearts broken as much for that as for the symptoms if we're going to be part of an ultimate solution. So, we have, as we normally do, a few questions, and these, this week's are very straightforward. This is not complicated uh, stuff. You shouldn't have to take any kind of calculations. Um, you, you just have to Look inside and think about it. So, are you grieved by your own sin? We, we can't be a part of this. We can't be a part of the kingdom unless we recognize and are grieved by it. Are you grieved by the sin of others? Or are you trying to pretend that stuff isn't happening? And directly related to that, do you mourn over the brokenness of the world? 
do you mourn for those who do not yet know and follow Jesus? Let's take a minute and see, see what's inside. As we look at this verse, I'm not suggesting that we need to be moping about all the time. I'm not trying to, uh, not trying to create a uh, generational battle between the Gen Xers. You know, we used to, um, used to have all the, all the worship songs in minor keys and um, talking about our sin and being worms and everything. And people would complain if there was a uh, too cheery of a song. And the millennials came along and they were all smiling all the time. Uh, what's wrong with them? Um, this isn't about personality. It's not about approach. And, and I, yeah, I don't think we need to be, um, just like we don't need to be the shiny, happy Christians, we don't need to be the emo, gothy Christians. Um, what it does mean is that we need to look at the world as it is. And we need to react to that situation with the heart of Jesus. We should be going about our days happy about uh, all the blessings that we are given. We should be engaged in the good things that we are about. But at times, we will see the brokenness of the world, and we should be moved by that. Blessed are the ones who have confronted with eyes wide open the heartbreaking reality of their sin, how each one individually has wounded Christ and necessitated his sacrifice, how all of these sins add up to create all the suffering in the world, and in the face of this, to keep our hearts open to the plight of those around us. Those will be comforted in that Christ and only Christ can meet every need, mend every hurt, and bring wholeness. Shalom, where there was brokenness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not remain unmoved by our plight. That you mourned for us, that you hurt for us. You took action um, because of that sorrow. We ask that you would give us your heart and we would give us your eyes, um, and that we would be your hands and feet to meet the, uh, the suffering in the world, that you would help us to mourn, and that you would comfort us. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. To find out more about The Bridge, or to listen to any message from our complete archive, visit thebridgeseattle.org.